This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 259th episode, we're covering the fourth and final day of SVP, as well as the posters from the third and fourth days. We also have some other non-SVP news. We have an interview with Phoebe Wood, which was also done at SVP. She has an amazing story about a Ankyornis model, which she created at the age of 11, and her mom, Joe, also joined us for the interview. And we have dinosaur of the day, Chinkonkosaurus. But before we get into all of that, we'd like to thank some of our patrons for keeping our podcast operating this year. <laughs> and this week, we'd like to thank Kyle, Brendan Kavanaugh, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Avery, Crispy, Jeb from Arkansas, Albertosaurus, Trev, Ayrton and Everett, and Greg. Yeah, thanks so much for supporting us, and uh, hopefully you enjoyed all of our updates from our Australia road trip, and then of course all the SVP and behind the scenes stuff, or you know, peeking ahead. If you were a patron, then you knew that this interview was coming up, for example. So yes, thank you so much for your support and. It really helps us to keep this podcast going. If you want to join this awesome group of people, then check out our page at patreon.com slash I know Dino. Yeah. And as a reminder, we have lots of different rewards ranging from access to the Discord server and the premium content all the way up to free books and ad-free episodes and everything in between. So definitely check out our rewards if you're interested in helping out the show and getting some more content. The final day of SVP had lots of amazing dinosaur talks. Up first was Patrick Druckenmiller, who was covering some Alaskan dinosaurs. There are actually quite a few talks that talked about these polar dinosaurs, either from Antarctica or basically from southern Australia, because Australia used to be farther south, and then also a few talks from Alaska. This one especially focused on the Prince Creek Formation, which at the time of the Cretaceous was about 80 to 85 degrees north and 90 degrees north is as far as it goes, because <laughs> that's how we measure it. That's the North Pole. So it's really close to the North Pole. But at the time, the poles were a lot warmer. Back then, the mean average temperature throughout the entire year was about 6 degrees Celsius, which is in the 40s Fahrenheit. On a warm month, it would make it all the way up to 14 degrees Celsius, which is something you might get like in Seattle or something. Like It's really not that cold. But in a cold month, it would average about negative 2 Celsius, which is like 28 degrees Fahrenheit 
and obviously below freezing. So if they were purely cold-blooded, that could definitely be a problem for dinosaurs. Although obviously we don't really think they were cold-blooded anymore. We think that they had a little bit warmer metabolism than that. And Prince Creek has at least four named dinosaurs from it. It's also the farthest north known dinosaur formation. So there's a lot of interesting things we can learn from it. And most importantly, aside from the difference in temperature, is probably how the dark and light cycles affected things. Because it's super weird, but when you're all the way at the North Pole, there's only one sunrise and sunset in the entire year. It's basically the sun slowly spirals up all 180 two and a half days <laughs> and then while you're tilted towards the sun which would be in the summer and half of the spring and half of the fall and then the rest of the year it's 182 and a half days of darkness because now the sun has dipped below the horizon so you get one really long sunrise then a long day and then a really long sunset and then an incredibly long and probably miserable dark night <laughs> So that only happens right at the North Pole, exactly on the North Pole, because the rest of it, they get a couple days where the sun dips down and comes back up, but it's still mostly dark for a lot of the year and mostly light for the rest of the year. And at 80 to 85 degrees north, they were definitely experiencing this kind of craziness. Because of that, obviously, when it's in that extended dark period, there's not going to be much of any vegetation for herbivores to eat. So they're going to have to have some very different adaptations than a dinosaur that lives near the equator where there's a very consistent like cycle is going to have to adapt to. Patrick was saying that between March and October there were probably plenty of plants. That would be the time period when the sun is up but then around October the leaf fall would happen and you know these herbivores might be in trouble. So previously people have hypothesized that maybe they migrated and if they didn't migrate either eating really poor food, kind of like how pandas just eat this really low quality food because they're up in the mountains in the winter and it's the only thing around. Or if they're really small, maybe they could have hibernated or stuck around somehow by like reducing their metabolism. Unfortunately, we don't have any evidence for reproduction in the Prince Creek Formation, so we can't say for sure whether or not animals were there year round. But at the Kakanaut Formation, which was at the time about 70 to 75 degrees north and had about a 10 degrees Celsius mean average temperature, we do have some evidence of really tiny dinosaurs that must have been born there basically. And 70 to 75 degrees north is still well within the Arctic Circle because remember the Arctic Circle is 23 and a half degrees. So if you subtract the 90 from 23 and a half, you get 66 and a half degrees north is where the Arctic Circle is. So everything north of that is going to have several days of complete darkness and a really long time with very little sun, you know, several months where there are not going to be really any plants. Sounds like a rough life. Yes, especially for an herbivore or maybe for a predator too, because you're going to have to try to find herbivores that are like hibernating in burrows or something. But we do think that there were both herbivores and predators there because there was one really amazing slide that they put up, which showed nine teeth which all easily fit on the size of one US penny. <laughs> so you imagine the size of a penny, which is you know not much bigger than a thumbnail if you're not familiar with US currency. You could fit nine teeth on it. So obviously these were very, very tiny dinosaurs. Between the nine teeth, 
There were both herbivores, specifically ornithischians, and theropods. So we were seeing a pretty good diversity, and obviously that meant that there was pretty established ecosystem there year-round. There were also a lot of great pictures that he showed of individual fossils, and most of the time he used the head of a pin <laughs> as his scale bar, which is, you know, like roughly a millimeter long. And some of the teeth were even just like the size of one cubic millimeter. So just like the tiniest little thing that you would never possibly find. So the question that you're probably wondering is like, how did they even find this thing? If you're out in the field looking at dirt, how are you going to notice something that's a millimeter by a millimeter? It's so tiny. So what they were actually doing was microfossil excavation, which looks a lot like panning for gold. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, it's the same thing where you're, you're just filtering through a small sieve and then you have to look at it all laboriously and see under a microscope if anything looks like a bone. And hopefully you find some cool stuff. And they found tons of cool stuff. Sounds like mostly teeth. Yeah, they did. But they also found a femur that was only about two and a half millimeters long. And not surprisingly, it's very spongy bone and obviously very, very young because a femur, you know, our femur is over a foot long and relatively thick. <laughs> not like dinosaur, not like sauropod, you know, sort of weight support, but a lot longer than two and a half millimeters. And it's almost certainly from something that was unhatched or perinatal, as they usually put it. They also found a tooth of a leptoceratopsid, which they said is the first occurrence of a baby or perinatal tooth of a leptoceratopsid. So that's pretty cool. It's also neat to see some ceratopsians from up there. To figure out how old that leptoceratops tooth was, they compared it to a recently described tooth from a protoceratops, and this tooth was even smaller so it was likely from an embryo as well because the one that they were comparing it to is from an embryo, although technically they can't be certain about that because it wasn't found in an egg, but, you know, seems like the most simple explanation. They also found several other types of teeth. They had a thesellosaurid tooth, which is a small ornithopod, so one of those bipedal herbivorous dinosaurs. This one. And when I say small, I mean as an adult, it was also small because obviously we're talking about little tiny microfossils, so clearly the individual was small as well. And they also found juvenile hadrosaur, troodontid, ceratopsid, and pachyrhinosaurus teeth. It's a lot of variety. Yeah. In addition, they also found a nunuxaurus bone, which was a young of year, they describe it, meaning that it was under one year old individual, and some avialins. So that's pretty sweet. Mm -hmm. And obviously, the reason that this is the most significant is that we're now seeing that both theropods and several groups of herbivorous dinosaurs were all reproducing in the Arctic Circle. And we can be pretty confident about this, not only because some of them appeared to be from the size of an animal that would have been still in an egg, but also because even if they were just recently hatched, there's no way that they would have hatched and then traveled thousands of kilometers immediately afterwards, which would mean either they couldn't have been hatched south of the Arctic Circle and marched their way all the way up <laughs> before they died, and they also couldn't have hatched there and then immediately migrated, because that's what they would have had to do. Since it takes hadrosaurs an estimated 171 days to reproduce, if you think about it that way, no matter when they laid the egg, either the adult or the baby is going to have to spend a significant amount of time in the dark in the Arctic. So we're definitely starting to see more evidence of 
these year-round habitants in the Arctic, which I just think is fascinating. I have no idea how they did it. It's just crazy. Were they squirreling away leaves? <laughs> like, what? how could they possibly, how do herbivores survive when there's no plants around? This is crazy. They had to get creative. I guess, yeah. The next talk that we saw was by Matthew Carano, and he was talking all about Allosaurus and specifically how we basically need a neotype. We've talked about this a couple times. There have been a couple papers that have come out and they've said, I also support, you know, making a new Allosaurus holotype essentially, and they call it a neotype because the holotype, as Carano puts it, is a quote, box of rubble, <laughs> end quote. <laughs> so there was a petition that started in 2010 to change the holotype to a new specimen. And specifically, this neotype would be a topotype because it came from the same quarry. So it's an even more special version of a neotype called a topotype because there's always a question when you're changing a holotype if you actually end up with the exact same species. And if you find it in the same spot, you have a much better chance of that. Mm. So if only Marsh had found it first. Yes. Had found the topotype first, I mean. <laughs> yeah, like a better specimen. Because like you're saying, Marsh did name Allosaurus way back in the 1870s, but he didn't do the greatest job ever because- He's know, in the middle of the bone wars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and most of our Allosaurus information comes from the Cleveland Lloyd Quarry. The mystery quarry. Yeah, it has a really weirdly large number of allosaurs. It's most of the bones from this quarry are different allosaurus individuals, but they're all jumbled together. So it's not a good place to get a neotype from because all of the bones are kind of mixed up. And then another problem with the holotype is that the monograph that described them is a sort of best case look at the bones. It's not real bones. So they're they're drawn out and you know they're not photographed because this is the 1870s. And they're, they kind of fill in missing pieces of the bone. So it, like, it could use some revision, I would say. In addition to just needing a new updated monograph, this new individual is much more complete. As is often the case, Scott Hartman was commissioned to do a skeletal drawing of it. And it's in really great shape. They actually even found most of the tail, but mistakenly they threw part of it away since it was found separately. Oops. Yeah, that's not great, especially when later on you decide you want it to be the holotype. <laughs> and it does have some pathologies too, which are going to get CT scanned and then presented as a new monograph. So that's pretty interesting. But even more interesting potentially is that this individual went on display in 1916. Its abbreviation is USNM4734 which stands for the United States National Museum, also known as the Smithsonian Museum. And you probably know that Research Casting International just redid a bunch of their bones. And in fact, this Allosaurus was included in that. In 2013, they tried to return the Allosaurus to its original condition, which included unrepairing, in air quotes I should have around repairing, mm. the skull because the skull was, they tried to reassemble the skull by, you know, kind of filling in some gaps and sticking it back together. But when they did that, they realized that they had accidentally made it 32% shorter oh, than no. it should have been. <laughs> That's a lot shorter. Yes, it definitely is. And before that, there had been proposals that, you know, maybe it should be a different species and that there's this shorter headed allosaur. But 
as Carano put it, quote, there is no such thing as a short-faced allosaur. Please ablate it from your memory, end <laughs> quote, <laughs> which I think is pretty great. So redoing this individual of Allosaurus simultaneously helped us realize that Allosaurus is a little more consistent than we originally thought it was. And on top of that, this one would be a great one to use as a topotype. So hopefully that happens soon. Carano also said the ICZN has yet to make an official ruling, even though the petition was started in 2010. But a lot of that is because people keep commenting mostly to say that they agree with it. <laughs> and the ICZN is waiting for the comments to stop. So he politely asks that people stop commenting because it's delaying. <laughs> it's an interesting dilemma. Yeah. Don't say you agree. He was like, if you have something unique to say, you can say it, but don't just say, yes, I agree, because that'll just delay it longer. We might have a new Allosaurus topotype, holotype, neotype pretty soon. Hard to say. It's been almost 10 years in the making. <laughs> yeah. Next up was a talk by Lindsay Zano, and she was comparing basically when Tyrannosauroids showed up in North America with when Carcharodontosaurians disappeared. So basically thinking about things like Allosaurus starting to disappear. I mean, not Allosaurus, Allosaurus, <laughs> but Allosaurus type ancestors. So not big bone crushing things like tyrannosaurs. These are things with more slender teeth that are more of like the slicing types like Cargarodontosaurus. So basically what happened was around the time you Tyrannosaurians exploded, we start to see some of these basal tetanurans like Carcharodontosaurians disappearing. So the Tyrannosaurus seemed to be just kind of taking over the ecosystem as far as the whole Northern American super mega apex predator position from everything else. The interesting thing about it is that after discovering Siats, which is an allosauroid from the late Cretaceous, it really expanded the existence of these Carcharodontosaurians a lot later than we thought they were around. So it kind of overlaps with Tyrannosauroids because right around the same time we were seeing Morose around, which is a Tyrannosaur. And it was also in North America, so they seem to be overlapping at least a little bit in their existence. <laughs> so, so the question is exactly when did tyrannosaurs take over or did they coexist for a while? Maybe in the same ecosystem as quote-unquote subsidiary predators. <laughs> so Suski Tyrannus was about 100 kilograms, whereas Lythronax was greater than 1,200 kilograms. And that was in a 10 to 12 million year span. But while this happened, Laramidia was forming with the Western Interior Seaway. So it was happening more or less in isolation. And then from that, we can test this sort of quote unquote ecological release of individuals into the ecosystem. So what they found was that there was sort of a random change in mass of tyrannosaurs while allosaurs were still around. But then as soon as they went away, then we start to see a drift towards this larger size, but it doesn't really accelerate in mass. The highest rates of change were near Suski Tyrannus just before Tyrannosaurus day, or what they call stem Eutyrannosaurus. So it's kind of a complex growth mechanism, and we're not sure exactly why it happened that way. It's still possible that the increase in mass was a result of their tracking prey. So maybe, you know, the herbivores like Triceratops were getting a lot bigger, and then that's when Tyrannosaurus got a lot bigger. And maybe the fact that they did that helped to drive out these Carcharodontosaurians. We're not entirely sure, 
But it is really interesting that we're starting to see this overlap because before it's been shown as more of a clean split where Tyrannosaurus just took over right away. But now we're starting to see more of an overlap. Much messier. Yep, as usual. <laughs> Up next, there was a talk by Menglu Ma all about Sin Ornithomimus or Sin Ornithomimus, maybe, since it's Sino, like Chinese. But basically, it was a presentation on a ton of new individuals and a lot of details about the bones. But the summary is that there are 14 new skeletons, three of which are subadults to adults, and 11 of which are juveniles. They were all found in 1997 in Western Inner Mongolia. And then in 2001, they found another 13 individuals. Wow. <laughs> including juveniles. Yeah. It's a good growth series. It really is. And that one included one hatchling. And when you combine it with the other finds, there are 22 one to two-year-olds, two three-year-olds, one that's about seven years old, one that's slightly larger than the seven-year-old, and then there's an adult that's about 12 years old. So yeah, it is a really good growth series, but it's kind of weird because there's so many that are one to two years old. But who knows? Maybe they had a really tough life and most of them were about one to two years old when they died. Or we just happened to catch some little group of one to two-year-olds that were really unlucky. <laughs> yep. It's been known to happen. Up next was a talk by Nathan Carroll, which was about a really cool coprolite. <laughs> there was a lot of coprolite talk at SVP. It's always fun. It really is. So this coprolite is especially valuable because of the feather or feathers which are contained within it. Unlike some of the other coprolites we've talked about, this one was really small. His description of it is basically if you make like the OK sign and you have, you know, your thumb and your pointer finger touching, it's smaller than the space that's made by those two fingers. So, mm. you know, like a square inch or something. It's pretty tiny. And I think a nugget is a pretty good description for it because of how much cool stuff is in it, despite its small size. <laughs> kind of like a gold nugget. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I'm just made out of poop. But <laughs> so this coprolite has some bones in it, which is common to see in coprolite. It also has medullary pith, which is the foam that fills arrakis, which is the middle sort of stick part of the feather. If you've used in feather in like a, as a quill, it's the part that you dip in ink. That's the arrakis. And the bones that are in the coprolite appear to be from birds, as best as we can tell. And then there are a lot of endocasts of what appear to be feathers. Obviously, this was all done with CT scanning because it's such a tiny little thing. If you break it open, it's going to be a mess. <laughs> You're better off just micro CT scanning it and trying to see everything that's in there really laboriously, but still better off. And inside, they found what appear to be a downy feather as well as a contour feather, which are the feathers what you'd see along the body of a dinosaur, not necessarily along the wings, and some things that look quite a bit like scales. And the downy feather appears to have something stuck on it with, quote, enough legs attached to it to be a tick, end quote, and possibly even multiple ticks because there are a lot of these little things around it that look kind of like ticks grabbing onto the downy feather. Even cooler is that this might be the first modern feather ever seen in 3D hmm. because every other feather that we find gets squished in the fossilization process and so it kind of gets flattened like you're pressing a flower whereas this one was preserved in a coprolite so it was just sort of magically preserved in 3D for us to examine exactly you know the 
Through the magic of digestion and not being able to break down the feather. <laughs> yep, exactly. Although I'm not sure exactly how this compares to the Myanmar or Burmese amber finds, because those are pretty much preserved in three dimensions as well. Although maybe the, the way that the amber sticks on top of them or the tree sap sticks on top of them at the time, maybe that distorts them a little bit. I'm not sure. It's always good to find more dinosaur coprolite or coprolite with dinosaurs in them. <laughs> don't really know what made this one. Just all the things. Up next was a really interesting presentation by Tyler Lyson, who was looking at basically what exactly was happening with dinosaur groups at the KPG boundary. So right when dinosaurs went extinct, which dinosaurs were doing the best or the worst, or, you know, maybe weren't around at all. To do this, they looked at primary locations of KPG boundaries, meaning ones that you can definitely tell are on the boundary. And this included 500 locations around Northwest Dakota and Canada, including 84 locations that had plants, 36 that had pollen, and 200 plus that had vertebrates, 100 plus of which had dinosaur skeletons, when you combine all of them, you can find all of the major clades of dinosaurs that we know from the Cretaceous within five meters of that Chicxulub impact boundary. So you see, you know, all the ceratopsians and hadrosaurs and tyrannosaurs and troodontids and all that kind of stuff. Although they did see that there were more ceratopsians near the boundary, but this might not mean that Ceratopsians were doing better right at that very end of the Cretaceous because it might just be related to the type of rock that the bones were found in because Ceratopsians are more common in mudstone and it just turned out that they had a lot more mudstone near that end boundary and Edmontosaurus tends to show up in sandstone and yeah, they just didn't find as much sandstone. So unfortunately, it's likely a preservation bias. Or the Ceratopsians were thriving because of their hard heads. Yeah. <laughs> or there was some vegetation that was doing better or something. <laughs> yeah. It was interesting, too, because they also obviously made a comparison to the Deccan eruptions that were going on essentially in India at the time and have been proposed as an alternative for why the dinosaurs went extinct because it would have created a lot of climate change with all this crazy amount of volcanic eruption. But during the Deccan eruptions, they said that the diversity of animals, insects, and plants stayed really high, only dropping after the Chicxulub impact. So this might be used as another piece of evidence that really that diversity of dinosaurs stayed consistent all the way right up till the meteor slash asteroid hit. And therefore, that's the real nail in the coffin for most dinosaur other than birds. And up very last... At 4 p.m. on Saturday, <laughs> the last dinosaur talk that we saw was by Christian Heck, and he had a new take on how to sort of determine whether or not Myasaura switched its gait from bipedal to quadrupedal as it grew, because that's been proposed previously that when they were little, they were light enough that they could just stand on their hind legs, and then as they got bigger and heavier, they had to switch to a quadrupedal stance. But Recently, a lot of people have determined that it's more likely that it just stayed quadrupedal the whole time, and they want to take another look at it with a new line of evidence, which is always a good thing to do. It's always good to take multiple looks at the same question rather than just moving on to the next thing, <laughs> assume it as you have one version of an answer. So what they decided to do was 
look at a comparison between legs and arms, which we talk about a lot, and how the legs and arms grow, because as we said in another talk, if the arms are getting a lot bigger relative to the speed of how the legs are getting bigger, that shows that the arms are taking on more weight than the legs are in the same period of time. So if you're really like bulking up your arms, it's because you're using your arms for something, <laughs> essentially, especially if they're bulking up faster than the legs. So unfortunately, where Myasaur is found, specifically the two medicine formation, everything is kind of jumbled up. We don't have a lot of good skeletons of individuals. What we have instead is bone beds with lots of individuals all scattered together, just like we were talking about with the Cleveland Lloyd quarry. So you can't really say this arm and this leg go together and then compare it to a bunch of other matching arms and legs and see whether the arms are growing more rapidly than the legs. So instead what they did is they came up with a pretty clever workaround. They used lags to find individuals of the same age. And again, lags are that histology where you slice the bone and they look for the tree ring growth line type things. And it stands for lines of arrested growth. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so if you find one lag, you figure, okay, it's about one year old, etc. So when they did that and they plotted all of their lag aligned arms and legs, they found that the arms and legs were growing about the same over time. So you weren't seeing that the humerus Basically, the upper arm bone was bulking up a lot faster than the femur. They were growing at about the same rate. And therefore, it was probably quadrupedal its whole lives, especially if it started out quadrupedal or ended as quadrupedal. No matter what, it seems like they were staying about the same as they grew. There are obviously a lot of complications, one of which is that for under a year old, you're not going to be able to see any lags. So they all kind of get jum jumbled together. What they did was that they tried to proportion them based on size, but that's starting to get a little bit messy because not everything's going to grow at the same rate and we're already trying to compare growth rates. So that's can be a little dicey. And then obviously there are going to be a lot of imperfect matches because we're just looking at arms and legs of the same age individual. So if there's any sexual dimorphism, any variation between individuals or any other issues with why an individual might be bigger than another, like a pathology or something, you're going to have errors in your data. But when you average everything together, that should help eliminate outliers. And we do see that it appears that they grew around the same rate. So I think it's another good piece of evidence that Myasaura probably was quadrupedal its whole life. We also have a few posters to talk about from the last two days of SVP. One of them was by Jay Rousseau, and he had a poster all about a new basal ankylosaur, possibly the most basal ankylosaur. And it looks like a really cool find. We're going to have to wait till this is published until we can find out more about it. But they found a good portion of the length of the body, including tons of osteoderms, some limb bones, and I think the hips and skull were in there too. So it's going to be a really cool find. Obviously, it doesn't have a name yet, but it is from the Jurassic and it's from Portugal. So if you're a fan of Portuguese dinosaurs or ankylosaurs or Jurassic, it's all good stuff. Savannah Carpenter also had a poster about some new ceratopsians from Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. And one of them is a little bit more like Ava Ceratops, if you're familiar with that dinosaur. It was a pretty cool one recently described. The other one looks a little bit more like Diablo Ceratops which is super awesome with the big horns sticking up out of the frill, kind of curving outwards. 
all devilishly. <laughs> I'm surprised you don't like ceratopsians more than ankylosaurs. Yeah, that's true. They're both armored and awesome. <laughs> but these two don't have names yet, unfortunately. Hopefully we'll find out more soon and maybe they'll even find some more skulls from the area as long as we can keep doing paleontology in the area. This next one isn't dinosaur, but it's still pretty cool by J.P. Rio. And it was about a super matrix of crocodilians, which is kind of similar to Emmanuel Schaaf's super matrix on sauropods. So there's your dinosaur connection. <laughs> <laughs> they spent three years measuring a bunch of crocodilian bones, and then they put them all together in the phylogeny. So they came up with a result, and it places a lot of crocodilians that were previously hard to figure out. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Stuart Samita had a second poster, also about Dimetrodon or Dimetrodon, except this one was about how they found several species in different sizes. And the smallest one was about the size of a cat. <laughs> yeah, he mentioned that he would really appreciate one as a pet. <laughs> yeah, it'd be pretty cute. They also did full-scale drawings on the poster of all the femora, which was pretty cool. Yeah, it really gave you a good sense of scale of how big the legs were on the cat-sized one all the way up to the huge monsters. Which, yes, we realize they're not dinosaurs, but they're still cool. Still Mesozoic megafauna. Although they're synapsids, they're not even diapsids. So they're closer related to us than they are to dinosaurs. But still, they always come in those little toy packs when you get dinosaurs, <laughs> along with mosasaurs now. We also saw a really cool poster from M.V. Connolly at the Tate Geological Museum, which included some really cool new sauropod discoveries, which definitely hadn't been found yet, or at least weren't in the state to be shown in a display case when we went through the Tate Museum about three or four years ago. But it was kind of fun because Emmanuel Shop was talking when we were there and he was like, when can I look at these sauropods? <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, we were kind of joking with him. When are you going there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's what Connolly was asking too. But basically they found a couple of sauropod feet which are now articulated and still aren't quite on display at the museum yet. And there's also a diplodocid skull, which is currently being prepped out of the rock. And it's only about half as big as an adult skull, but it's kind of squished down in the rock. So it's only a couple of inches wide because it's kind of smashed up. But since the fossil is so fragile, the prep work is kind of slow going. But we will soon have another diplodocid or diplodocid skull, as well as these really cool feet. So new dinosaurs coming out, new spots. So that's all our SVP 2019 coverage from Brisbane, Australia. It was a good year. Yeah, and we had a really amazing time at the conference. We got to meet a bundle of listeners and had a really awesome time talking to them about not just dinosaurs, but all sorts of fun Australian stuff. <laughs> yeah, as you know, too, we did a lot of really great interviews, which we are still releasing you may have noticed one a week so that we're not too far behind. Yeah, I think next week we're taking a very brief hiatus from SVP interviews because we've got an interview that's been waiting to be published for a while, but then we're going to go back and have another SVP interview and then continue on with all the Australian road trip interviews that we did for museums all across the outback and also cities in Australia, not just the Outback. <laughs> yeah, and keep an eye out on our YouTube channel too. We'll be releasing some videos about that trip. Yeah, Sabrina's hard at work finishing those videos. So, 
in non-SVP news, because <laughs> there's a little bit of that. Well, there's a lot of that, but you'll hear more about it in the coming weeks. I've been slacking. <laughs> we can call it slacking. There's been a lot to cover. We don't want the episodes to be like four hours long. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, in Washington, in the U.S., Burke Museum has a new exhibit called Fossils Uncovered. And when you go through it, you see specimens from 541 million years ago. And then it also shows the Mesozoic and the Cenozoic, you know, mammals. Cool. Goes along with their new T-Rex call that they're still excavating or preparing, I should say. Yeah, they've got a lot of cool stuff coming out. The next thanks to Chris, who shared this one with us via Twitter. So NASA scientist Jesse Christensen created a really cool animation. And it shows how long dinosaurs lived by tracing our solar system's movement through the Milky Way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's about one minute long, and it maps out dinosaur evolution through the galaxy's rotation. So the gist is the sun takes about 250 million years to orbit the center of the galaxy. In the video, it says 200, but then she said later, it's closer to 250. (laughs) And in the video, you see different periods of the Mesozoic. I think it's mostly the Jurassic and Cretaceous. And then where our solar system was in the Milky Way when those dinosaurs lived. And then it kind of points out, okay, this is when this dinosaur lived. Yeah, it gives you a good sense of scale of how far apart the dinosaurs lived too. Mm -hmm. That the solar system moved through like, you know, a full hour of a clock worth of rotation around uh, around the center of the galaxy. Yeah, so good sense of just how different their world was, depending on which dinosaur you're talking about. So a few notes, like I said, things aren't exactly the way it's laid out in the video. So uh, other stars and planetary systems in the galaxy, they move at different speeds and in different orbits. And also our galaxy is moving through space. So Christian said, quote, the animation kind of makes it seem like we've come back to the same spot. But in reality, the whole galaxy has moved a very long way. It's more like we're doing a spiral through space. As the whole galaxy is moving and we're rotating around the center, it kind of creates this spiral, end quote. Luckily for us, though, our solar system stays about the same distance away from the center of the Milky Way. And that's a good thing because the center has a lot of stars Mm. and it's unstable and there's a lot of radiation. So not being in the center makes it possible to have life on Earth. I think it's also full of like supermassive black holes, right? Which also seems kind of dicey. Yeah, (laughs) that sounds familiar, but. I am no expert in space. Me either. It (laughs) freaks me out. I don't like thinking of things beyond Earth or at the very least our solar system. It's too much. (laughs) There's too much out there. (laughs) It's like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where there's the room and it's like you are here Mm -hmm. in the whole universe of everything. Like, I don't want to think about it. Uh, (laughs) Too insignificant. I already know, but I don't want to think about it. That's fair. I like thinking about it, but actually I might like thinking about it more now that I've seen it in relation to dinosaurs. (laughs) It does help. Whenever you tie dinosaurs into things, it makes it a little easier to swallow. (laughs) Next, thanks to Devin from Horse Archer Productions, who shared their new web series, A Million Bones of Stone, which is this educational video series about paleontology. So the first episode's up, and it's about laylaps. The video's about 10 minutes long. If you want to watch it, it tells you the story of laylaps, which If you listen to our Bone Wars episode in episode 250, you can probably guess that this video also covers some of the Bone Wars. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So the video has the description of Laylaps and also how it became Dryptosaurus. We'll share a link. Yeah. If you want to see some of the visuals that go along with what Sabrina was describing, it's a nice little video. And last, a quick update on Jurassic World 3. Justice Smith and Daniela Pineda, who played Franklin and Zia, will be in the movie 
along with Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard, which might not surprise you, but it seems like they're bringing everybody back for this right. last movie. With all the list of people, I'm, I'm imagining everybody having like, you know, 10 seconds of screen time <laughs> before they move on to the next group. <laughs> Makes sense if you're going to show dinosaurs in different parts of the world. Oh, yeah. And you got a bunch of different characters to work with. Yeah, that's true. So we'll see. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our interview with Phoebe and Joe Wood. We're chatting today with Phoebe Wood, who is a primary student in Adelaide, Australia, and she won the Oliphant Trophy and the Oliphant Science Awards in the statewide competition of South Australia because she built this amazing Anchiornis Huxleyi model that is actually on display right now at the, at the South Australian Museum. And we're also here with her mom, Joe Wood. So... Thanks for taking time out of SVP because I know you're trying to see a lot of the sessions. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you've spent 400 hours on this model. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Oh, a bit exhausting, but I only, it wasn't too bad because I only did it for fun. If it wasn't fun, I think I would have stopped at the three hour mark. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. And you've got, probably hundreds of hours of research into this. Yeah, that's most of, well, around half of the time that was put into the project was just research. That makes sense. How did you find out about Anchiornis and decide that you wanted to make a, 
a sculpture of it. Well, I chose thank you honest because I'm not really sure. It's just <laughs> I've always been encouraged to do science by my parents, my mum and my dad. And um, I always knew I was going to go into science. I just never sure what type. When I was about eight, I really got into birds. And so I wanted to be an ornithologist. I still want to be an ornithologist, but that's a separate part of this now. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, my grandma gave me this book. It's Field Guide to Mesozoic Birds and Other Feathered Dinosaurs. It was really the next step from modern birds to dinosaurs. And I thought, why do a modern bird that already exists that everybody knows what it looks like when I can do something that not many people have seen? Mm-hmm. It's less common. And also they were fascinating. I couldn't decide if I wanted to do a dinosaur or a bird, so I went halfway between. <laughs> <laughs> and I chose Anchiornis because, well, for one, it was a cool dinosaur. Mm-hmm. And many of the others that I felt like doing were too big because the elephants has a size limit. Oh. Really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> and you wanted it to be full scale? Yeah. And one of the others that I tried was a striped crested dragon. Mm-hmm. There wasn't much information on that one, so I chose Anchiornis because I didn't want to do something like Archaeopteryx because everybody knows Archaeopteryx. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but Anchiornis, fewer people have heard of, yet there is still enough information for me to do something decent on. Yeah. And so your model is half uh, skeletal, right? And then half, how would you describe it? The um, feathered. Half feathered. feathered and <laughs> how it would look in real life. That's mm-hmm. what I always describe it as. And how did you make the feathers? Well, I didn't really. They're actually feathers that I... That my mum got from dead magpies we picked up on the side of the road. (laughs) That was my only role. I had to pick up dead magpies and pluck them. That's amazing. It's an important role. Yeah. Yeah. Pictures of everything that I did. Yeah. Yeah. And I was the photographer. Yeah. (laughs) Also important. Yeah. 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 These photos, yeah, are amazing. And you spent, you had to do this after school and on weekends. Yeah. I really wanted to do this for some time, but it's a school entry thing mm-hmm. and our school didn't do it. So mum talked to the principal who was Barb at the time and she said that we could do it as long as mum was the school coordinator. <laughs> <laughs> mum, yeah. said, mum said yes because of course. She's, <laughs> she's a wonderful mum. Oh, thanks sweetie. <laughs> so you had another role, not just yeah. dead yeah. magpies. Yeah, I'm sweet mum. <laughs> <laughs> and then the only catch of that is that whatever we do has to fit the school topic. Every mm-hmm. term we have a topic. And the term that we're doing the elephants happened to be compost. And Anchiwanasuxlia doesn't really fit in compost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I could have tweaked it to make it fit, but I don't think the school would have liked that. <laughs> so I ended up doing three projects in the same time. One was a board game, a compost board game called from rot to rot, rot to plot, sorry. And I did that with two friends. Another one was a photography, many types of flight in nature. Nice. But with uh, Anki Ornis, did you read the paper about his coloration? Was that part of what made you want to create it? Um, not really, because they have proven its color. And so it's more so the pictures of the color that mm-hmm. are more 
intriguing. Yes, how it looks is definitely a reason why I wanted to do it. It is a really cool looking dinosaur. Mm -hmm. And you also reached out to a lot of paleontologists and got their advice or... Um, Scott Hartman and Michael Pittman. Michael Pittman worked on a number of Anchorage Huxley-related papers about the soft tissue mm. and how they can detect it. Mm. And Scott Hartman is a paleo artist who draws the skeletal structures with also showing where the um, soft tissue would go over that. Mm -hmm. So his drawings were really helpful over the project because I pretty much based my whole project off of his skeletal drawing. Mm -hmm. So I actually had to ask him permission to use it because I was worried it was copyright. But he said, according to his website, he doesn't really think it is copyright because I'm not physically copying, pasting his work. Right, you're not tracing. saying it's mine. Mm -hmm. Though I did actually trace part oh. of it as a <laughs> – I traced it up to my scale as a – guide for the rest of it mm -hmm. it's not as good though without all the shading and <laughs> <laughs> so what materials did you use to build for the side that looks like it would be in real life i used a heat moldable plastic called warbler warbler is actually also biodegradable there, there's a link to compost right there mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> <laughs> dead animals fit that too yeah, yeah. that's true it's true it's made up. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to make. In my defense, I did not know what I was going to make it out of yeah. at the time. Right. So. <laughs> Could have just done biodegradable materials and making a thank you honest actually I model. That would have been really helpful. <laughs> I tried many different things when I tried when I started making it. I tried a few different methods of paper mache and a few different clays to try and make it, but there's also a weight restriction with the elephants, so I oh, couldn't. Really? I was a bit careful about what materials I could use. Mm -hmm. What was the weight restriction? Eight kilos. Oh, yeah. wow. That's yeah. really light. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so metal's pretty much out at that point. Yeah. And then and, what about for the skeleton part? Um, when I got stuck, I went to this place called Adelaide Molding and Casting, it's a shop. And I asked what materials would be good to use, and I ended up taking home this sample of a substance called warbler that's biodegradable, as I said, mm -hmm. and heat moldable. When I got it back the first time, I made two skulls with it. The first one melted, so I made the second one, <laughs> what's actually on him in the end. Amazing. So for people who are listening, can you tell us, can you describe it a little bit, the colors and things like that? It's really fluffy on one side, so a few of the feathers stick up in odd angles. <laughs> and there are loads of different layers of feathers, so it looks pretty much like a really fluffy bird mm -hmm. with a dinosaur head and its wings sort of striped. Each layer of feathers has white feathers with black tips, but there are four layers across it, so it looks striped. And the back leg has the same sort of coloration without the multiple layers. The claws on the living side are black, but the ones on the skeleton side are white. Mm -hmm. The model's positioned on a log, and he's holding onto it with the skeleton hand, and the other side is the wing that is free from the log, and the bones are white, but the skull is 
uh, brownish color. Mm-hmm. There's a line across the forehead of the skull where the representative of the flesh is built up oh. to show the actual face. Oh, wow. And his eye on the living side is clear because at the time I had no information as to what the eye color would be. Yeah, so uh, I don't think we know now either. Right, right. <laughs> they actually do, but... Oh, they do? What is it? Yeah, we just found out the other day. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Since so. we've come to the conference, we've actually met the people who worked on the papers and they've actually told us new revelation. They actually know. <laughs> so <laughs> need to change that when I get I, him back. I don't think it's been published yet. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. So with the, I see that the, most of the body feathers are all black. I'm assuming those are the magpie ones? They're actually a dark gray so they are all magpie feathers (laughs) it's a lot of feathers crest and its tail oh yeah i forgot to mention in the description it has a orange crest in its head so it looks pretty funky Mm -hmm. yeah so that's from something else that's like just a normal fabric material chicken oh really (laughs) (laughs) so those are also bird feathers yeah and the tails feathers are another type of chicken (laughs) amazing what about the white feathers are those magpies magpies. okay Nice. Yeah. This was at the uh, Oliphant Science Awards Open Day. Oh, yes. So prize winners in every section because there's the models and inventions mm-hmm. from all the way up to R to 12, but there are each individual section, and I was in year six to seven, and I got first for that. And, then and you this. were surprised by it, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, not really. It was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was hopeful that I'd get something. Mm-hmm. Not entirely sure what everybody else has done, though, because you don't know until the open day. And even then, all you know is that you've got something. All they have is a sticker that says prize winner. Mm-hmm. It is really annoying. It's just a yellow <laughs> sticker with the words prize winner written across it. <laughs> you do not know until the presentation night. There is a reason that they keep it secret. is because people who win third prize often do not turn up to collect their prize because they don't know what they've got. They're just like, mm. I don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be there and go, oh, yay, I won second prize third prize and I'm really happy. No, I want to get first prize. <laughs> There's no point taking a night out of my other work. So loads of people don't turn up. So now they do it a different way. So if you want to know what you've got, you have to turn up. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And then after you won the prize, that's when you were invited to Flinders Paleo? Yeah. In Adelaide? Um, Michael Mills was actually there on the open day. He's stage name Professor Flint. He's mm-hmm. a singing paleontologist. <laughs> and... Yeah, he invited me to the paleo department. Mm-hmm. Do you have a plan for what you're going to make next? Or are you already making something new? Yes, I am. <laughs> I've been trying to keep it a secret, but I accidentally let it slip over, <laughs> over the last few days. <laughs> I really don't want to say because this model was meant to be an animatronic model, Ooh. and that did not end up happening. <laughs> so I may end up just with another still model next year, but I do want to try something of what I was aiming for this year. Yeah. Well, we heard you'd already been offered a job at SVP, so (laughs) that's how good your work is. (laughs) Model-making job. (laughs) Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Pleasure. Thank you for inviting us. Thanks again, Phoebe and Joe, for chatting with us at SVP, taking time out of your busy schedule. A couple of notes about the awards that Phoebe won, because we didn't really spell it out too well in the interview, 
The Oliphant Science Awards have been going on for 39 years, and they're the largest science awards for any schools in South Australia. Phoebe won first place for the Models and Inventions category for years six to seven. Then she won the top prize for primary schools, the Young Scientist of the Year 2019. And finally, she won the overarching top prize, which is called the Oliphant Trophy, and it was the first time ever that a primary student had won that. And as part of our Australian road trip, we made it to the South Australian Museum and saw Phoebe's Anchiornis model, and it was spectacular. Yeah, it's really cool. It's in there, I think it's called the Discovery Room, and we posted a picture of her Anchiornis on our Instagram, so if you want to see what it looks like, check it out there. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Tinkankosaurus, which was a request from Tyrant King via Patreon and Discord. So thanks. It was a theropod that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Shandong province in eastern China in the Wangxi group. There's only one species, Tinkankosaurus fragilis, and it's named for the village Tinkanko, or Dingango. I saw several spellings of this, but that's common when it comes to romanization of Chinese <laughs> words. And it was near where it was found. It was described by Yang Zhongjian, also known as C.C. Young, in 1958 based on one scalpula, which he said was basically like Allosaurus but smaller. Some scientists thought that the scalpula, the shoulder bone, was a rib or a part of a gastralia, but a 2013 study found that to be unlikely. Dan Scher assigned the fossil to Salurosauria in 2001, and then a few years later, scientists refined that to a Tyrannosauroid. So it's switched over compared to what we were talking about with the Tyrannosauroids taking over from the Carcharodontosaurians. People at first thought it was a Carcharodontosaur or at least an Allosauroid, and now we think it was a Tyrannosauroid. But there isn't much more to say about this one because we only have that one bone. And our fun fact of the day is about Anchiornis, because obviously, how could I not make it about Anchiornis? <laughs> when Phoebe put so much effort and research into her Anchiornis sculpture, I feel like I need to do a little Anchiornis research myself. So there have been two Anchiornis specimens that have been studied for their coloration patterns. Both were studied with microscopes looking for shapes of melanosomes. And we've talked about that a little bit before. Basically, melanosomes are these little tiny organelles within the body, and they produce melanin, and depending on which type of melanin they create, they make your hair different colors if you're a mammal, or your feathers different colors if you're a dinosaur. So 
what they did was they compared them to modern melanosomes and depending on the shape they could guess which type of melanosome it is, therefore what type of melanin they would produce, and therefore what color feathers they would create on say an Anchiornis. So the first study is the one that Phoebe's reconstruction is based on. It's mostly black and has some white accents on the wings and I think a little bit around the rest of the body. And then it has a big red tuft on the top of its head. So that one's the pheomelanosome. It's the same thing that gives me the red tuft of hair on the top of my head. So yeah, basically redheaded hair uses the same melanosomes. But the second specimen that was studied didn't find any pheomelanosomes on the head. So in other words, they didn't recover this red tuft on the head. They gave a lot of different reasons for it. And they said, quote, several explanations might account for these discrepancies, including ontogeny, intraspecific variability, and sexual dimorphism, as well as taphonomy and or sampling, that is different regions within a multicolored crest, end quote. So in other words, it could be that maybe it wasn't just a solid red crest and it had like little bits of black or something in it. And therefore they just sampled different parts of the crest. And so one of them sampled a part that was black and the other one sampled a part that was red. And they both decided the whole thing was that color. Or it could be that say like males had a red tuft on the top of their head, but females didn't. And so we have one male and one female. Or that just during the fossilization process, the pheomelanosomes just didn't preserve. A lot of other possibilities, but I think the most relevant might be to look at how modern birds are, because if you look at skeletons of a lot of birds, they'll look identical, but then if you look at them while they're alive, they can have very different coloration patterns, including how we have different species and subspecies of birds that are nearly identical other than their coloration patterns. So it, it does seem that if all of a sudden we can get all this detail about what color these dinosaurs were, we'd be likely to see a lot more variability than we see in just the bones alone. So who knows, but we're not exactly sure what Anchiornis looked like and especially not sure if they all look the same. That wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you want to join our growing community, check out our page at patreon.com slash Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.